So as the children are making their way out, here's a question for you. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is a question that people have answered in many ways since the first century. You probably know this, but JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that Jesus was the archangel Michael. Mormons believe he's the spirit brother of Satan. Muslims believe he's just another prophet. The religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that he was a blasphemer. Some intellectuals today try to write him off as being delusional. Other secular people believe that he was just a myth. Others still believe that he was a good teacher, worth listening to. He had some good things to say. Others think that he was a good example, you know, a good role model for us to to, uh, follow. Well, in the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus asked his disciples who the people of his day say that he is. And they replied in verse 14, some say that you're, you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turned the question to them, who do you say that I am? To which Peter gave his famous response, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got the right answer, but it's clear that he didn't really know what that meant yet. So in today's text, we're going to look at the very next chapter, on the heels of chapter 16, where that event took place, we see in chapter 17 in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to show them who he really is. Not with words, but with a display of power and glory. And so let's go there this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 to 13 together. And if you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 977. Once you're there, I invite you to stand, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word as, as I read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And as he was transfigured before them, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes 
say that first Elijah must come. And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's word. Father, may these scriptures breathed out by you open our eyes afresh to see who Jesus really is this morning. Teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So in this summer sermon series, we're getting to the end of this. We got one more after Peaks of Grace. We've been hiking some of the notable summits throughout the scriptures, throughout biblical history, and we're seeing what God has to teach us on the tops of these mountains. And in today's text, Peter, James, and John go for an unforgettable hike with Jesus to the summit of a high, unnamed mountain, and it's on this summit that we will get a glimpse unlike any other, a glimpse of who Jesus really is When you have eyes to see Jesus for who he is, it will change your life forever. I hope that if you haven't seen it before, that you would see it today. I'm going to use three more trail markers in this sermon as we make our way to the summit of what I'm calling Mount Glory. And they're this, who who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and how we respond. So let's get hiking. First, We see on this summit that Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament pointed to. A common way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures was to call them or to refer to them as the Law and the Prophets. It was kind of the vernacular of of the Jewish people to refer to all all the Old Testament in that way, the Law and the Prophets. Now remember from last week what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking about all of the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Isn't this amazing? This, this, this thread that connects all these mountains together. And now on yet another mountain, who do we see appearing with Jesus? It's Moses who represents the law because The first five books of the Bible are attributed to Moses as as being the author, and in it is where God gives the law. So Moses is associated with the law. Elijah is one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, representing the prophets. Both of these men had encounters with gods on the tops of their own mountains. And they are also pointers to the coming Messiah. I mentioned this last week how Jesus is the prophet like Moses who was promised on Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. And Elijah is mentioned in the very last verses of the Old Testament. The closing lines, the closing verses of the prophet Malachi connect Elijah directly with the coming of the Messiah. 
Now look what Luke tells us about Jesus in Luke 24. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 24, Luke writes this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets. See it again there? It's the law and the prophets. He, entered, he, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I've heard Christians say things like this before, uh, almost... Uh, almost disparaging the Old Testament as being kind of like second-class uh, scriptures because Jesus isn't in them, right? You've got to get to the New Testament before you get to the good parts, right? Well, Jesus begs to differ. According to Luke 24, 27, then this should thrill your heart to know that while Jesus isn't named explicitly, he's dripping off every page in the Old Testament. For those with eyes to see him, he's there. When you understand this, it'll truly change and transform the way you read the Old Testament, knowing that Jesus is in there. It points to him. It's about him. The second thing we see about who Jesus is on the summit is that he is the very glory of God. Remember back to Exodus 34. Where after spending time in proximity to God's glory on Mount Sinai, Moses comes down with the law on the tablets and it says this, that his face was shining. Wouldn't that freak you out? It freaked out the Israelites. His face was shining. The people saw it. They were afraid. And so Moses began a practice of covering his face with a veil when he would meet with the Lord. He would take it off and he would put it on so that people wouldn't get too freaked out. Well, now in verse 2 of our text, it tells us that Jesus' face now shines like the sun. There's a difference between the face of Moses and the face of Jesus. Moses' face shone because it was reflecting the glory of God. And over time, it would fade. That light would fade. But Jesus' face shown because he is the very glory of God. He's the source. I love what it says about Jesus at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. So if you had to compare Moses' face uh, with Jesus' face, Moses' face would be like the light of the moon that reflects the sun. But Matthew writes to tell us that Jesus' face is the very Son itself. You see, in Jesus' earthly ministry, this is a reality that Jesus laid aside, choosing not to use it to his advantage. This is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians 2, verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, it's almost like Jesus is Clark Kent, and he's concealed the fact that he's really Superman. Choosing to appear like everybody else and not using his powers to his advantage in his day-to-day life. And so here on this mountain, Jesus is giving these three disciples a brief glimpse of his true identity as the very glory of God. Now, what do we mean by glory? Glory talked about this earlier at the table. 
It, it is kind of a churchy word. Glory is a word, though, that essentially conveys importance, significance, or, or weightiness. And when you understand the true glory of God, you know that, that He is so significant that everything else just seems insignificant. And so what we mean when we say that a, a certain idea or argument has more weight to it, we're saying it has more glory, it's more significant, it's more important. And so Jesus is, is one, the fulfillment of all, all the law and the prophets. He's the very glory of God. And the third thing Jesus reveals about himself here that I want to point out to you is that he's also the very presence of God. He's the presence of God. No Jewish reader could look at this passage and not be struck by the mention of the cloud in verse 5. This would immediately have suggested to them the Shekinah glory cloud. What is that? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Shekinah is a word that, that means dwelling. And this cloud in the Old Testament was a, was a way in which God manifested his very presence to his people. We see it throughout. We see God in the form of this cloud in Exodus as he led his people out of slavery in Egypt. It was probably the same cloud that enveloped the top of Mount Sinai when Moses received God's law. And later, when the tabernacle was completed, this cloud filled it so completely that not even Moses could go into it. That filled Solomon's temple at its dedication so that the priests were unable to enter it. Jesus is showing us here that he is unlike Moses and Elijah because he doesn't just point the way to God, he doesn't just bring us to God, he is the very presence of God in human form. He is the glory of God and the one that all the Old Testament scriptures point to. Now, let's observe our next trail marker as we consider what this passage tells us that Jesus does. First, notice that when the bright cloud envelops them and the voice of God speaks, these three disciples hit the deck in terror. Their faces are in the dirt. And remember, when, when the glory of God descended upon Mount Sinai, God said that any person or animal that got too close and touched that mountain would be struck down. They would die. They'd be killed. And at the end of Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And the Lord grants this request, but under a condition, God would put Moses in the cleft of a rock and cause his glory and all his goodness to pass by him, but he would cover Moses over with, with his hand until he passed by, and then he would take it away, and Moses could look on, on the back of the glory of God as he passed by. You see, Moses couldn't look at the pure glory of God in the face. God told him that no man can see his face and live. The, uh, the children's book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis puts it really well. He says that uh, Aslan, who's sort of the Christ figure in, in these novels, uh, he says he's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not a tame lion. So here we see 
that God is not a tame God. He's not a pet to be kept. He's not tame. He is, in fact, quite dangerous. Now, modern people find this kind of stuff a little strange, confusing, maybe even a little offensive. You know, why, why does God have to be so hard? Why, why do people have to die? Come on, isn't that a little, taking things a little too far? Remember a couple months ago, this is the best way I can explain it to you. Remember a couple months ago, that tragic accident with the submersible that was taking people down to see the Titanic? What happened was that as that vessel plunged deeper and deeper below the sea, uh, kids here, uh, you can probably, you've probably experienced this. If you go swimming and you dive to the bottom of the swimming pool, you, get, you feel your head getting like kind of, it hurts a little bit, right? It's because all that water, it's the weight of all that water pressing down on your body that's causing that. And so as this submersible was going deeper below the sea, the weight of all that water just overwhelmed the materials used to, to create and make that submersible. It, it, it was so overwhelmed that it just crushed it. Crushed it like an empty soda can in your hand. It, it imploded. It was crushed. It couldn't withstand the force of all the water bearing down on it. It's just a fact of science. It's not that the ocean is mean. It's a fact of reality. And so in a similar way, anyone who gets too close to the presence of God begins to feel the moral weight of his infinite glory and goodness. And because we're finite and flawed, we can't bear his being. His weight, it's too heavy for us. It's a fact. When Isaiah comes near to the presence of God in Isaiah 6, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We're towards the end of the book of Job when God draws near in a whirlwind and speaks with Job. Job says this in Job 42. He says, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Then what does he say? Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now think of this. In order for the presence of God to dwell among his people, what did he do? He instructed them to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle where the Shekinah glory cloud, that, that dwelling cloud, would dwell in the innermost part of that tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. That's where that cloud would reside. Do you realize what God's doing? He's, he's commanding the, the, the construction of this tabernacle as a way to shield his people from his presence for their protection. The tabernacle and, and later the temple was, was a shield to protect God's people from his, his infinite glory and the weightiness of his presence. Now in our text, no one can say with certainty what the reason was for Peter's comments in verse 4 about building tents is also the word for tabernacles, for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. 
But I found it interesting that one commenter suggested uh, one possibility was that Peter was thinking about his protection. And then the thing Peter feared happened in verse 5. The Shekinah glory cloud appears. It overshadows them. And in terror, they drop to their faces in the dirt, thinking, this is it. We're done. It's over for us. The cloud's here. This is it. But look what happens next. They don't die. Why? Verse 7 tells us, Jesus drew near and touched them. Saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw only Jesus. It's interesting. In John chapter 2, Jesus says to the religious leaders, tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Jesus was referring to his body when he said that. He was referring to his death, that he would die on the cross. Do you see the connection? If Jesus is our temple, then Jesus is our shield. Instead of us being crushed like that submersible under the weight of God's glory, Jesus was crushed. His body, the temple, was torn down when he took our sin upon himself and died in our place on the cross. And now, for those who trust Christ as their Savior, the New Testament says that you now are a temple. Isn't that fascinating? You now are a temple. And God, the one who was once fatal to you, now dwells in you and gives you life, life eternal. But for this to be possible, that would mean that Jesus, the Son of God, would have to suffer be killed. This is something that the disciples had no category in their minds for. A suffering Messiah. In the, in the very uh, previous chapter, before this, after Peter makes his bold confession, is where we see him making one of his biggest blunders and, and saying to Jesus as he explains to his disciples that he has to go and die and rise again. What does Peter say to him? Never shall this be, Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter got the right answer. We didn't really know who Jesus was and what he was about and what he was going to do. He must suffer. And again, this was a category that they had no place for in their own thinking, a suffering Messiah. But this is what must happen for Jesus to be our shield. And this idea is all over the place here in our text. I want to show it to you. First, notice the words spoken by the Father in verse 5. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This, this is two references here smushed together. The first is a reference to Psalm 2 verse 7 which identifies Jesus as the son of God he's the son of God but then the next reference is to Isaiah 42 which is a, a well-known passage that describes what uh, we've called uh, the suffering servant and the Jewish people had had no idea that those two would be the same and here uh, God is in this statement he's 
mashing them two together and saying that it's, it's the same. It's one and the same. Jesus is the Son of God and he's the suffering servant. Now look at verse 3 where Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Well, what are they talking about? Thankfully, Luke tells us in his gospel that they were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about his death. They were talking about the cross. We see yet another reference to Jesus' suffering in verse 9 when Jesus tells them he must be raised from the dead. He's got to die. And lastly, in verse 12, he says to them that he must suffer as John the Baptist did before him. In all of these references to suffering, Jesus' point is this. It's that his cross must come before his crown. His path to glory and our salvation runs only through the cross. This is what Jesus came to do. Now in our final trail marker, how should we respond? Notice the final thing that the voice of God says in verse 5. We already covered the fact that the first two parts of this are a reference to Psalm 2 and to Isaiah 42, but the final part is a reference to Deuteronomy 18. And again, I believe we talked about this last week as well. He says, we must listen to him. This is how we respond. We must listen to him. Look how Peter cites this passage in his speech in Acts chapter 3. He says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And, that sh- and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. We must listen to him or be crushed under the weight of God's glory. Now, you would do well to listen to everything that Jesus says. But in the context here, we must listen especially to what he says about his death and about his resurrection. In Matthew 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we observed earlier today. Part of the meaning of this meal is to remember that Jesus' broken body and his shed blood on the cross is for the forgiveness of sins to all who will trust him to save them. Have you trusted Jesus as your shield? If not, start there. That's where you start. Start there today if you haven't. And with this as our starting point, another way we must respond is to grow in our obedience to all of God's word. If Jesus is the very glory of God, his supreme significance demands that he be the center, the very center of our lives, around which everything revolves, everything rotates around him. He is the center. But in our sin, we like to make ourselves the center, don't we? And so that's a, it's a matter of, of repenting. It's a matter of removing ourselves from the center and putting Jesus at the center because he is heavier than we are. He is more significant than we are. Jesus didn't die for you and rise again so that he can be on the periphery of your life. A hobby, a club, 
that you attend once a, once a week on a Sunday morning. You see, Jesus' glory is actually a threat to you if you only see following him as giving up things that you like and doing things that seem boring. His glory is a threat to you if that's how you see it. But the antidote, the antidote is to respond one more way. We need to see Jesus as the source of all true beauty and goodness and pleasure. Glory absolutely means importance and weightiness, but it also means beauty. It also means beauty. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the very embodiment of the pleasures of God. Jesus' glory will be a threat to you unless you truly see his supreme beauty and know that he is the source of your greatest joy. This is what God wants us to see on the top of Mount Glory. He's the one that all the scriptures point to. He's the very glory and presence of God. He's our shield and our salvation. He's of supreme significance, which demands our full devotion. He's the source of our greatest joy. And I'll end now with these words from a hymn written by John Newton. Our pleasure and our duty. Though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is powerful and able to cut right to the heart and bring conviction, but also to bring joy. When your word cuts us, it's only to remove things from our lives that uh, are, are working against us for our joy like removing cancer from the body. Father, may we be uh, willing patients on the operating table week in and week out, standing under the, the sharp blade of your word that we may become more and more like Jesus. God, we pray that we would be people of joy not people who put their heads down and, and, and grunt through obedience, but people for whom we have, we have seen the glory and the beauty of our Savior, and, and it's our, our heart's greatest delight. May we be a joyful people in this world as we go about our week, as we go to our places of work, and as kids go back to school soon, God, we pray that they would do so with joy. With a joy that this world cannot understand, but it's attractive. And they'll want to know more. Help us, Lord, in those moments to be ready to share with them the beauty and the glory of Jesus. The only hope for them to be their shield. God, we love you. We thank you for all these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.